0: Our Father, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just quickly add my greeting to Wilson's. Uh, If you're um, uh, just part of the church family here, uh, welcome back. If you're a visitor who's been here before, welcome back. If you're a newcomer, welcome. And if you're joining us online, welcome to you too. Let me repeat to you a couple of verses that Mike read from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I'd love to invite you, if you've got a Bible, to open it to our gospel reading from John chapter 13. We've Uh, In that reading, which I just read for us, we return to that fateful night that Paul's describing in that reading, in that letter to the Corinthians. And if we were reading any of the other Gospels tonight, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we'd be reading about this meal, the Lord's Supper. But did you notice that on the point of the Lord's Supper, Gospel writer John is mysteriously silent. Did you notice that? Never in our gospel reading did we encounter the institution of the Lord's Supper. And if you read on, you won't find it. This reading is the beginning of a five-chapter act in John's gospel, spanning all the way from chapter 13, verse 1, to 17, verse 29. And it's all one continuous take. If you've seen the World War I movie, uh, 1917 very clever movie they've they've shot the movie in a series of long takes and then strung them together in this very clever way that leaves you with the impression that the whole movie's been shot in one continuous take kind of like a west wing walk and talk you know that follows the characters dialogue around the corridors and on and off the elevator john's uh, in john's gospel this act this five chapter section's a bit like that camera never pulls away never breaks one continuous shot and if you keep reading on into this act as John intends for his reader to do then you'll notice you never come to the Lord's Supper as Paul or the other gospel writers describe it in fact John seems to content himself with dropping an allusion to it here in verse 2 during supper now what are we to do with this why, if, if the Lord's Supper is so important, I mean, Paul says, look, this is what I received from the Lord, and I'm passing on to you. That's important, right? If it's so important, then why does John simply pass over it? Well, John's gospel, look, is, it, it's almost certainly the latest of the gospels, written between 80 to 85 AD. So John knows the other gospels. He, and he's not contradicting them. In fact, he's, he's doing exactly what the other gospels are doing. That's what, what the Last Supper narratives always do. He's interpreting the death of Jesus. It's always what the Last Supper does. Doesn't matter who's talking about it. The Last Supper is where Jesus interprets the meaning of his coming death. It's where he explains, I'm going to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. This meal, Jesus says, shows what my death is all about. And gospel writer John, he doesn't disagree. The rest of the gospel makes that very clear. But, John does say something distinctive about the meaning of the death of Jesus. And this is the point that I want to crystallize in your hearts and minds tonight. We could sum up John's message this way: Jesus is the friend of sinners. So as we journey towards the cross tomorrow, and then over the next couple of days, through it to resurrection, I, I want to ask a simple question: Why is Jesus the friend of sinners? Four reasons for our encouragement as we journey together to and through Golgotha. Number one, Jesus is the friend of sinners because he is sovereign in his death. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, or maybe you're someone who's grown up in the church, but you've got doubts, and you're very close to pulling away, then your view of Jesus may run something like this. Jesus was a good teacher, a prophet, a Galilean peasant, a social revolutionary whose popularity got him in hot water with religious and political authorities who therefore, because they felt threatened by him, killed him. His death shocked everyone. This is the crucial bit, including him. The Gospels are right to say that on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only according to this view of Jesus. That's, that cry is not the cry of God the Son. Suffering, the desertion of the Father's presence that we deserve. No, that is the cry of a delusional Galilean peasant who is genuinely shocked that angels had not come down to rescue him from the cross. That is a popular cultural view of Jesus, dead wrong says gospel writer John. According to John's first century eyewitness testimony, this is not the story at all. Nowhere in John's gospel will you find a hint that Jesus' death took him off guard. Now, you might think it would have, right? Great uh, religious leaders and philosophers usually lived longer, haven't they? Muhammad lived to 60. Socrates to 70. Buddha and Plato passed 80. Jesus is around my age in his early to mid-thirties. But do you see him fretting that his life is about to be cut off in mid-course? Is he sweating? Does he seem to be unaware of these backroom conversations that Jesus is having, that Judas is having, with the religious leaders about him? He doesn't. In fact, Jesus exercises Utter sovereignty over his coming death. Three times, John actually, more than this, John drops multiple clues, okay? For example, three times, Jesus is said to know what by all rights no human being could know. Verse one, he knew that his hour had come. Verse three, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and Most tellingly, verse 11, Jesus knew who it was who was going to betray him. Now, I'd say that last point is pretty critical, wouldn't you? The person who's scheming for your demise, the person who, when you're bent over, tying your sneakers, is behind you wetting the knife. It's no accident, you see, that John sandwiches, verse 20, if you read down a little bit further, between two predictions of betrayal by a trusted friend. Now, this verse appears elsewhere in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. There, it's, really, it's a really positive verse. Jesus is assuring his disciples about the reward in heaven which they can expect on the other side of their faithfulness to him. Okay? John takes this verse and he, he puts it here in order to say Jesus is not the unsuspecting victim. There's a dark double entendre here in verse 20. Let me read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The dark double entendre here is that the one that Jesus is about to send is the very one who's going to betray him. And then likewise, it's by Judas' betrayal that Jesus is literally to be received in the sense that he is to be handed over to his murderers who in judging Jesus are going to make their response to Jesus' father very clear. If you read on in Jesus' passion narrative, this, the word that Pilate uses for take him, take him, take him, take him. The, clo- the, the soldiers who take his clothes, same verb, Jesus is going to be handed over of his own will in order to be received by his murderers. He's in charge. Jesus is in total control. He's got a steady hand on the tiller. He's sovereign in his death. It is Jesus who sends his betrayer, who offers his life to be received by his murderers, who mediates the grace of his loving father, even unto agonizing death. Now, what a warning this is, not to presume that anything in our hearts is hidden from his sight. We never take him off guard. What was in Judas's heart didn't take him off guard. What's in your heart doesn't take him off guard. Now, maybe that's a warning, but there's also a promise attached to that. Okay? Not only does he know what's in you, he is mighty enough to deal with what's in you for you. Jesus is sovereign over all things, including the sin that preys on you, the guilt that stalks you, the shame That clings to you. He's sovereign over it all. Your guilt, your shame, your best kept secrets are no mystery to him. Now that leads to a second observation. Jesus is the friend of sinners, second, because his death cleanses from guilt and shame. That cleansing death is just what's forecast here in the foot washing in verses four and five. Now listen, you really can't imagine how demeaning a job this foot washing was and how shocking it was to his disciples. Foot washing in the ancient world is a bit like brushing your teeth. Utterly everyday job, utterly menial, utterly common, pretty unsightly. Now, these guys live in a part of the world where it's very dusty. They wear open-toed sandals, right? No Birkenstocks. Thank you very much. They walk long ways to one another's houses through streets littered with refuse and excrement. Right? No city services. And when you go to a meal, okay, in a hospitality culture like theirs, a good host is going to set out water for his guests to wash their own feet. Right? If he's a really good host, he's got some servants around, then he's going to offer his servants to wash your feet. But it's such a nasty job that if they're Jewish servants, they don't have to do it. Now, if he's a really, really good host, right? He's got a whole hierarchy of servants and slaves. Now, none of the servants do it in that case. It goes right down to the slaves, the bottom of the barrel. And yet, the very same Lord who formed the disciples' feet from mud now stoops down to cleanse the mud from their feet. The disciples are shocked. They're even dismayed. Their master is not behaving like a Jewish teacher. Okay? Now, sometimes rabbis would demonstrate acts of humility in order to teach an example, but never foot washing. Their master is behaving not like a free Jew, not even like a hired servant, like a slave. Shocking behavior, Jesus. But, but this is how Jesus explains the meaning of his death in the gospel. And so I want us to lean in. And listen, because there are two precious aspects of the death of Jesus. Two promises that we have to cling to. First, first promise. By his death, the Lord Jesus can take away the guilt of everyone who trusts in him. And verse 8 shows us that that's a washing that we all must have. Have Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Jesus isn't talking about feet. He immediately makes that distinction right after. He makes that super clear. He's talking about the cleansing death he's going to suffer. Friends, do you know that when Jesus died, he died to remove your guilt? He's cleansed you by the blood of his cross. If you're not a Christian and you feel the weight in your life of what the Christians around you call sin. Do do you know that Jesus died for that thing, that crushing weight? What Jesus is saying here is that he is a savior who is mighty enough to take the foot of Satan off of your neck. By his death, the Lord Jesus can take away your guilt. That's the first promise, but there's another. Because the same death that takes away our guilt can also bear away our shame. Look, Peter, Jesus says, verse 10, I've washed you already. My once and for all cleansing, it's enough. Now, I need to wash your feet because they stink still. See, guilt's one animal, right? Shame is another. Think of the person who falls into a sewer, covered in filth, they go home, they shower, right? They're clean, but the stink remains. It takes three days of washing their hair day after day, until the stink finally comes out. Shame's like that. Jesus dealt with your guilt. If you trust in him, he dealt with your guilt once for all on the cross. But the shame, it can remain. Even forgiven sinners still suffer shame. Now, maybe that's shame because of sins that we've committed. Maybe it's shame because of sins that others have committed against us. But Jesus shows that the same death that can take away our guilt, can take away our shame, So I want to encourage you to cling to this promise as we remember the Lord's death tomorrow. Return to the cross and let the Lord Jesus crucify afresh the shame that tries to tell the loudest story about your life. Let him replace that pack of lies with a new and a better story. And you have to do it day after day. That's the foot washing you have to come back for again and again. You've got to return to the cross. Yes, to marvel at the once and for all sacrifice, but also to return daily to the only spring that can cleanse wounded sinners from shame. Now, here's the thing. Having been cleansed from guilt and shame, Jesus can then do this new thing with his people. This is the third heading. Jesus is the friend of sinners because his death makes friends of sinners. Look at verse thirteen. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example, then you also should do just as I've done to you. Jesus says, in other words, look, my disciples must reject the world's status-seeking ideals. As your master, I'm stooping to the lowest level. As Paul says, Philippians 2, I'm becoming a slave. And so I'm showing you, because I'm the one at the top and I'm going down, nothing is beneath you. You are to serve one another. You are not to obsess any longer about distinctions of wealth or class or status. You belong to me. So you cannot go on living as if social capital is what counts. You cannot go on living by prioritizing relationships based on status anymore. Through my humiliating death, and that's the true cleansing to which this washing points, I'm making you friends with God and friends with one another. You're not a hierarchy. You're a community of friends. Now, if that rankles you, don't worry. Because it bothered Peter too. Now, that, I think, is why Peter tries to get out of Jesus washing his feet. I think Peter's basically saying here, Lord, um, you know, when he says, uh, then my hand and my head's too. I think, he, I think he's basically saying, uh, can I just go take a bath then, please? Don't No need to wash my feet. Because he knows what this means. But Jesus didn't back down. In fact, having just called himself master, lord, teacher, if you read on into the 1917 type movie of this section of John's gospel, then you'll get to John 15, verse 15, where Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. That's the new life for which Jesus frees us. This new life of friendship with him and with one another. It's the new life he opens to us by taking away our guilt and our shame. No longer do we use badges of status as loincloths to cover up our shame. Jesus is the friend of sinners because his death makes friends of sinners. Now fourth and final heading. Jesus is the friend of sinners, and please listen. Because he will love you to the end. As I close with this point, let me paint you a picture. During the meal, which is taking place in this passage, the disciples would probably have been seated around several couches, the couches would have been shaped in a U shape, according to the Roman custom. So the disciples wouldn't have been seated on chairs. Uh, they'd have been reclining by the couches, leaning uh, propped up on their left elbows, using their right hands to eat. And John John expects his uh, readers to understand this, to be able to envision this. He's already referred to this way of seating back in chapter 2. I mean, to them, it would have been as typical as, hey, you know what the seat formation in a Honda Civic looks like, right? You got two in the front, you got three in the back, okay. John expects them to understand what um, what the, the picture that he's painting. So here's the picture. Front and center at the head of the couch is Jesus. There are two disciples on either side of him, which means that there are, at the two other couches, uh, they're quite crowded with five disciples each, three here, five there, five there. We see in verse 25 that John is leaning back against the Lord, which means that John is on Jesus' right. That's the runner-up position of honor. Second place, silver medal, well done, John. But in the position of greatest honor, position to the left of the host sits a man close enough to Jesus to receive a morsel of bread from him. Who is it? Judas. John's description of the various disciples combined with uh, the understanding John's assuming of this Roman uh, custom of seating means that we're almost certainly meant to envision Jesus flanked on either side by John On his right, and Judas on his left. Two disciples in the positions of highest honor, and Judas in the position of supreme honor. Now, if you're online and you've got your uh, worship guide open as a PDF or something, you can scroll up. If, uh, if all of you would please turn and look at the front of your worship guides, I want to show you the Ford Maddox Ford painting. I want to point something out. You see Peter uh, feeling terribly awkward about having his feet washed, don't you? Now look at the table. You see the guy unstrapping his sandal? The guy who's keen to have the Lord of all creation stoop down and wash his feet? Who's chomping at the bit to be honored and served? Now what's that on the table in front of him? Money bag. What on earth? What in heaven or on earth would possess Jesus to give this traitorous, dirt bag, the seat of honor? The answer is simple. Because Jesus is the friend of sinners. He will love you like he loved Judas to the very end. He shows great kindness and favor, even to Judas, even while Judas is wetting the knife behind his Savior's back. Jesus knows what Judas is about to go and do. He knows he's about to be handed over to suffering and death, right? We've already seen that. Jesus is sovereign over this. But This is the significance of Jesus handing Judas the morsel of bread. It's not just, hey, eat judgment on yourself and go, buddy. This is, this is a sign of Jesus' intimate love, the great honor that he is bestowing on the disciple who is to betray him. He's fully aware of what Judas is up to. It's an act of love. And it may have even been this unbelievable act of love to an unbelievable dirtbag who couldn't receive it that inflamed Judas's guilt and shame to the point uh, that, he, that he broke. To Jesus' left then, the traitor, specially honored, specially loved, but dead set on betraying the only one who could rescue him from death who could vanquish his sins, deal with his guilt, heal his shame, who could make him friends with God and with other disciples. But to Jesus' right is John. Now, it's curious, isn't it? John's leaning back on Jesus. In the Greek, in the original language, the literal translation is that John is resting on the bosom of Jesus. So Jesus is busy showing the depths of his love to Judas, dirtbag Judas. But it's John who finds his identity in being loved by the Lord. The great privilege, look at this, the great privilege of John is not to have been the disciple Jesus honored, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. John knows what it is to be a sinner befriended by Jesus. In fact, knowing Jesus' love, John knows exactly what it is that Jesus is experiencing with the Father. The perfect, infinite love that Jesus experiences from his Father in heaven. If you look back at the... You don't need to flip there. If you look back at the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is said to be in the bosom of the Father. Same phrase. So when... John records that he's leaning back on the bosom of Jesus. He's talking about far more than a seating arrangement. John is saying that what every reader of his gospel is being invited to is a share in the son's relationship with the father. John is claiming to share himself. In the life of the triune God. And he's claiming that it's open to his reader. He's claiming to know the father. Who just is the loving of the son. He's claiming to know the son. Who who just is the returning of love to the father. He's claiming to know the Holy Spirit. Who just is the contented sigh. Of the loving father and the beloved son. And he's claiming that that's open to his readers. He's claiming that it was open to Judas. John says in his uh, first letter, God is love. Now the atheist Christopher Hitchens said of that, white noise. Hogwash. Christian nonsense. It's not white noise. It is John's discovery of the God that he knows through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Now, many of you know him. Some of you want to know him. Some of you want to want to know him. Whoever you are, you've got to choose a side. Either the place of Judas Or the place of John, the honored disciple, or the beloved disciple. Either the place where you will receive a morsel and flee, or the place where you can stay and receive the bread of life. Either the place where you will die, or the place where through the death of the only friend of sinners, you can live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, friend of sinners, have mercy on us. For your name's sake, amen.